Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of Rabbi Adam Klickfeld's weekly Rashi study class. And hello to anyone who might be listening to this asynchronously on the Temple Beth Am podcast. Uh, I want to dedicate the learning today uh, to a cousin of mine who fell in Gaza two days ago, uh, Eyal Mavorach Twito, uh, the son of my uh, cousin Shiri. Um, they're still in the midst of Shiva at the Moshav, uh, Beit Gamliel, where he grew up. Um, and he was a wonderful young man and, um, and a hero. It's all good, actor. Uh, and believed in what he was fighting for and leaves a family uh, deeply, deeply grieved. Um, and so we'll dedicate the memory, the zikro, to his memory and to his um, example. Okay, uh, we are jumping in. Um, I want to go back one verse because there was a Ibn, I think it was an Ibn Ezra or Sforno on a previous verse that we had not um, looked at, but I forgot. So we're in chapter 9. It's not set up yet. Um, Yeah, I want to go back to verse 11 of chapter 9, because there was something interesting on yet another way of understanding, sorry, chapter, verse 12 of chapter 9, of this notion of God hardening Pharaoh's heart. So we've discussed several times, and we'll continue discussing the moral implication. First of all, what does it actually mean? What's the difference if Pharaoh does it, or if it's more passive, his heart was hardened, or if God does it, should we be reading into that or should we not? Um, the moral implications of the second half of the set of plagues when God is, seems to be the one who's hardening Pharaoh's heart and then also the one punishing God for having a heart, a, punishing Pharaoh for having a hardened heart. Um, and there are endless ways of investigating that idea. I wanted to share with you one commentary by Sforno on verse 12. So I'm going to share the screen. Uh, can someone get rid of those two things on the screen that just... X out and minimize X. X out that. And then minim minimize that. Oops. Gotta click the click the there you go. Thank you. Okay, so the verse was that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So the first time we have that exact language. Listen to them. As God had said to Moses. Look what um, Sforno said in that verse. Um, for Pharaoh, the, the translation below is kind of a, a paraphrase. So let me translate it word for word. For, for he, the he here, the he here is Pharaoh, would not have been able to, that's what the Kilohaya Sovel means, would not have been able to, what does Sovel mean? Suffer, suffer but, and tolerate. Interesting that in both Hebrew and English, the word suffer and tolerate, which on first glance, we don't think of the same word, but really they are the same word. It means to, to endure. Would not have been able to endure this. Please, I think, without a doubt. Kinyan ba'oyev, like we learned uh, from Oyev, from Jove, Chapter 2, verse 5, the part of the phrase that Rashi quotes is just, does not tell you the whole story. The part of the phrase he quotes is, touch his 
person, uh, his bones, Biel Basaro, and, and his flesh. But if you look at the verse itself, uh, it's on the screen now, Job 2, uh, chapter, chapter 2, verse 5. This is the Satan trying to poke God into testing Job's faith, right? Because God is saying that he's the most, the man of the most stalwart faith on the planet. And um, starting with verse 4, Vayan HaSatan, the ad, you know, it's translated here as the adversary. Satan said to God, Vayomar, and he said, Or Ba'ad Or, skin for skin. V'chol asher la'ish yitain ba'ad nafsho. Anything that a person has, he will give up for his life. And then verse 5, Ulam shlachnayarcha. But if you put a hand on him, el atzmo, and you really like touch his bones, v'yelvesar on his flesh, imlo el panecha yivarcheka. He will, um, right to your face, he will curse you. Meaning someone's faith might seem strong and their resistance might seem uh, strong, but once you really start to torture someone, they're going to give up all of their faith in you. They're going to blaspheme you right to your face. Rashi takes that last line and throws it into our context. And what's he saying? And it's not, what's that? Sforno, sorry. And what's he saying, right? Pharaoh looks strong, but now that you've been pummeling him, he is going to submit. And if he does submit, then what? Why wouldn't God want him to submit? Too soon, right? So this gets into a deeper theological conundrum that we've been discussing. Like, God wants this suffering to be extended. God wants more opportunities to throw plagues on, uh, on him. And this reminds me, this is, a, this is a terrible association, but I can't escape it. Uh, you know, in the Avoda, in the um, Ela Eskara section of Yom Kippur, the martyrology, when it talks about the martyring of the sages in the time of uh, the Romans, and one of them, I forgot which one, was being burned, and they put a wet woolen cloths over his heart to extend the suffering, because the Romans did not want him to die quickly, wanted him to die slowly. Akiva? Okay. It's a terrible association, but this is what this reminds me of. Sforno is basically saying, why is God jumping in now to harden his heart? The hardening of the heart is not is not in this context, according to Sforno, meaning a, a reluctance. It's, a, it's like a stiffening of his resistance, a supernatural resistance to the plagues, so that he'll muster himself, so that he'll say no again, such that God will have yet another opportunity to pummel him. So what Sforno is responding to in the text is the shift that we had discussed about it moving from self-hardening to, to God hardening his heart. His explanation is sort of makes sense within the plot, but very, very painful to, uh, to take in because we want God as a beneficent God who is removing us from the tyrant to do so with as little, <laughs> little suffering as possible, even for the tyrant. But here is his ex intentionally extending the suffering. That's why he is forcing his heart to be hardened. So um, I forgot to do that last week. Um, it's a little bit on the nose as we think about world events right now, but I wanted to share that with you. Any thoughts or comments? Rosemary, can we give Rosemary a microphone? Let's take him off the stand. By the way, I just got, 
it didn't even occur to me that, oh, right, Joanna's still here. Like, next week, it's going to be so sad that you're not around this table. <laughs> Forgot that it's, like, a great thing that you're here. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, uh, I just see this in another way. It's the, whenever the bad things happen or tragedies, um, I felt uh, at the beginning when we read we have free will, when something happens, an accident, that you haven't asked for it, then that's the moment you ask, where is my free will? Mm. And I learned that my free will is the moment when the bad thing happens because then I can sit and cry or kill or do something or I can still have faith in God and go on. Uh, Pharaoh, at the beginning, he can be forgiven because Moses goes and comes and says, I'm a prophet. How can he believe him? But um, the moment that he had done already two, three uh, plagues, he should have, Pharaoh should have still learned something. And if God hardens his heart, if he was a good person, he would choose the free will and kind of push God away. Is it God or I don't know any power? He would push away. So he was in the game to, to have the hard mm. heart. Mm. It's not only that it was pushed to him, but he was already ready to not accept it. Yeah. So, right. So that is yet another way of reading how we're supposed to understand the language that God is hardening Pharaoh's heart. It's really that Pharaoh lives in a world in which at some point your own ongoing decision to execute your free, free will in a certain direction takes on a certain momentum, and then it's hard to reverse that. And we went, we went there last week. There's, Sforno is saying, you know, some, something a little harsher, um, which resolves maybe the problem in the verse, but for me it leaves a pit in my stomach. Stevie, and then Marshall. Just to back up what Rosemary said, uh, Sforno's quoting Satan, right, who's proved wrong, right? That's the whole book of Job, right? Job doesn't curse God mm. with all this going on. So you could say that Pharaoh still has some agency mm. in how he reacts. Interesting. Great. So, right, in, in context, the Satan seems certain that's going to happen, the wider context of the book is that it doesn't happen. Great. Marshall? I just noticed that the first word in the sentence is, is by Chazek, I don't know, at Leif Paro. Mm -hmm. And you're translated as he hardened Pharaoh's heart. And uh, Alter has another translation there, there. He says that, and the Lord toughened Pharaoh's heart. Yeah. Right. So uh, we're back in the translation problem. Toughen, harden, stiffen... Um, um, strength and strengthen. In some ways, I think that Sforno is is Sforno in Hebrew is building on the notion of a chazek as strengthen. That like God gave Pharaoh enough strength to endure this, so that he would be um, able to be smitten again. Right. So it really is going to chozek. Right. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna rehabilitate you so that I can smack you again. Anyone else on this? Yes, Ilan. So here's my question. In our modern sensibilities, obviously, this is disturbing. Does Forno find, is there any indication that Sforno finds it disturbing, or is it like, hey, this is what happened, and uh, too bad? Um, the quick answer is I don't know, right? All these medieval commentators are, are writing, you know, one-line commentaries, but they're not writing sermons, right? We don't know what the ninth paragraph of his 
talk about this would be. And he is, he's, he's, let me see if I can say this um, properly. He's totally inside the verse, right? He's, even though he's living a real life in Italy in the 16th century where he lived, uh, and, and probably has thoughts about what is right and what is wrong, what is just, what is not just, I would think, I can't interview him to find out the exact answer, that when he's commenting on the verse, his entire consciousness is, the, is that story, not necessarily, and therefore how should it apply to our contemporary mor morality. Because he's a human being, he can't but be at least unconsciously impacted in both directions, right? Taking his contemporary morality and throwing it back onto that verse, and then trying to figure out how that scene impacts how to live as a Jew in the 16th century um, in, in, in Italy. But he doesn't give us a clue in, in his, you know, he gives, he gives 11 words here. He right, doesn't give us a clue as to whether or not he thinks this is something that should trouble the Jew when you think about it more or, or not. In general, up in, until you get to the you know, late 19th, early 20th centuries, nearly every commentary on our tradition that exists was to prop up our story, prop up our verses, prop up our God, right? So it would be hard for me to imagine that Sforno was writing this and saying, hey, God, you're acting almost as tyrannically as Pharaoh seems to have been acting. Like, I can't imagine a Jew in that era thinking that, but I don't know, because it's not, you know, even though they hadn't lived through the Enlightenment and they don't, they didn't think of them, think of, um, they had less distance between themselves and the text than we do, they still lived a moral life and they still had to reckon with what it means to be in relationship with a God who acts this way. Um, but I don't, I don't, I don't have a great answer to the question. Rosemary, let's give, and then Joanna, actually, since the, give us Joanna first, and then Royce, Rosemary. Listening to this conversation, Sforno's choice of using the word sovel here is, I think, a very meticulous and deliberate one for exactly the interchange we had when I translated it and you refined it a bit, mm. right? That it means both suffered and tolerate, mm. that in all senses of the word, um, Pharaoh didn't go fully all the way. He didn't fully tolerate the plague, mm. nor did he fully suffer the plague. Good, good. That's Mary. Uh, in modern uh, way of looking, it's uh, far, we have to see the money somewhere, the economy. I don't think Pharaoh was really fighting with God in a way, in his mind, probably, we don't know, but probably he was fighting for his power, for the uh, free mandovre, um, um, what is it, the employees that he was going to lose. So there are many other personal uh, interests was there. It wasn't only fighting with Moses. Yeah. That was a little part of it, probably. Yeah, good. Um, there's nothing on this. I want to go to verse 13, which also we did last week. There was no Rashi on 13, and we ended just before I was able to um, share uh, another text, because again, I try to bring you this is you know, sort of a new custom. I try to bring you at least one commentary on any verse that Rashi is quiet on. But we did read verse 13. Let me read it again. God said to Moses, get up early. Present yourself uh, in front of Pharaoh. And say to him, This is what God, the God of the Hebrews, has said. Shalach et abduni. Uh, send my people and they will serve me. Another um, verse that has several different layers of quotation marks in that. Rashi was quiet in this verse. 
I want to share with you this commentary by Umberto Casuto. Um, now, the second time in a few weeks that we have um, come across him, uh, a uh, kind of a sage, also in Italy, this must be Yom Italy in Rashi class today, um, who, as we discussed last time, is kind of spanning the cultural and intellectual worlds of European from Judaism and the beginnings of a scholarly academic understanding of the text. So he, he really represents both. So um, look what he says. Piskash uh, Piska means section, and, and that's how he is referring to each one of the plagues, the, pray, the plague of Barad, of hail. Kan matchil hamachzor hashlishi. Here begins the third cycle. It was Kasuto who mentioned last time that, there, that he sees the plagues as 3331. Right? And he was comparing uh, you know, the last plague in the second cycle with the last plague in the first cycle. And so now we're into um, to plague seven, right? Dam, Tzfardeya, Kinim, Dever, Arov, Dever, Shechin, Barad, right? So we're on to, on to seven. So this is the beginning of the third cycle because we've gone through two cycles of three. And similarly, similarly to how it was in the beginning of the first two cycles, and you can, you can, you can look at this and, and trace it, that it's the beginning of the first, the fourth, and the seventh that Moses is commanded to present himself before Pharaoh in the morning. Um, so God said to Moses, get up early in the morning and present yourself to, to Pharaoh. The sorcerers, what was the phrase we used last time? The administrative magicians um, were not able to stand before Moses. Remember that verse? Look at um, verse 11. Right, right. So, so we were discussing the significance of the la'amod, that the chartumim were not able la'amod to stand in front of Moses because of the boils, and was it because they were embarrassed that they didn't have the power, is it because their feet were hurting them. What Kasuto is saying is here, and I think someone actually even mentioned this last time, that even though it's a different verb, root, that they were not able to omade, simple standing, and now Moses is being commanded to hit yet save the most intense type of standing possible. Aval Moshe lo yachol yet save bekuma zkufa lefnei hamel. Not lo yachol yachol. Aval Moshe yachol yet save bekuma zkufa lefnei melach. But Moses is able to fully present himself bekuma zkufa, right? Straight, um, standing straight, right? Zokef kifufim is God is the one who straightens up those who are bent lefnei hamel before the king. And not just he drags himself in for one more similar request and say, let my people go and they will serve me. But rather, you know what la'ayim means? To threaten. To threaten the most, a threat more threatening than all the previous threats, and we finally get to those verses, you'll see what he's referring to. So what Kasuta's pointing out here, on the one hand, it's like you have two ships going in opposite directions, or two, two levels going in opposite directions. You have the Khartoumim, not only not able to, uh, what's that? Humble. Right, not only not able to um, match what, what Moses is doing, or stop it, but they're actually personally suffering from it, they can no longer stand. 
And Moses is not only able, still, still able to stand, he is mitzvah saving. He's really standing, and his threatening power is going up and up and up. Right. So Kasutos points out this um, uh, widening imbalance between those who represent a real power and those who represent a fake pharaonic power. So I thought that was interesting. Um, Rick, I see your hand up. I don't remember. I didn't see it before, so I don't know what it was from. But go ahead. Hi, I was late on verse 12. Um, I'm not sure, um, to be honest, how many times to say this or not, but um, I figured I'd go again. (laughs) That uh, what I learned about Egypt was it was all about the weighing of the heart. And um, uh, the Pharaoh, there's all these uh, um, pieces of literature. There's all these things in hieroglyphics about how the Pharaoh would talk to the heart. Don't, uh, don't talk bad about me. Don't, uh, don't tell the gods about all the bad things I did. And so I'm looking at verse 12 and I'm, I'm seeing, um, the subject of the sentence is the lave paro. If, if you look at it the way I'm trying to look at it, the the lave paro didn't listen. Um, so it's it's um, again messing with the Egyptian idea that when you're when you're gone, then your heart testifies against you if you were good or not, and um, um, the the heaviness of Pharaoh's heart and all that. I just wanted to bring it up. It, it's it's right there again that. Um, we're messing with, or God is messing with the idea that Pharaoh can uh, can be saved at the end of his life. He's he's done all these bad things. Hmm. I don't know how to say it, but I wanted to bring that up again. Thanks, so Rick. thanks. Thank you. Okay. Um, now that brings us to new material. Verse fourteen. Uh, so we did thirteen. We did Kasuto on it. Rashi is quiet on thirteen. Joanna. Comment. It just struck me, Hityatsev Lifne. And I just did a quick Google search. I'm not sure if, it, if it's totally accurate, but it seems like the preposition that Hityatsev takes often is al. Hmm. So to say Hityatsev Lifne translated very directly to the face, like stand tall hmm. directly to the face of Paro. Yeah. I think in Parshat Nitzavim, it's also Lifne, right? Atem Nitzavim Lifne Um So I have to think about how often it's a different preposition, but yes, it's ve- it's very in Pharaoh's face, literally and, and figuratively. Barry? I'm, I'm just uh, torn by this uh, imagery now. Uh, the, the God uh, Harding, uh, Pharaoh's heart, but it's, my, my, the, the image is of someone who, who's been so so beaten up, flat on, his, on, the, on the ground, and the, the, the attacker, God, by the throat just brings him up so he can view be be available <laughs> for this and and, and this this pharaoh was just weakened totally weakened being held up yeah. like this and now moshe comes in standing as tall yeah and now moshe is commanding pharaoh yeah right so in our you know through our kind of modern understanding of of power dynamics and uh, and bullying and torture, it's, uh, 
we, we could have chosen not to read Sforno, and Sforno didn't have to read that verse that way, but it's hard to read Sforno and not have that image uh, appear. Um, okay, verse 14. Sue, do you want to read verse 14? And we're, this is, this for, verse 14 is within that many layers of quotation marks. So it's God telling Moses to tell Pharaoh that this is what God said. Okay. Ki bapam azot anisholeach et kol magefotai el libcha uvaavadecha uvemamecha ubaavur teda ki in kamoni bechol arts. Okay. What going on in those words? Um, because <clears throat> this time, or at this, not not because I don't think at this time. Uh, I'm, I'm sending all of my plagues to your heart. Um, to your, all your slaves and your people and, um, and that way you will know that there is none, like there are no, there is none other like me. I am in all the land. Great. Right? Yep. Good. So um, we have a basic sense of the verse from how Sue translated it. Uh, key, you're right. It, it could be a because or a for. It could just be a connecting word. Um, so we'll have to break that down. Notice the rather unusual thing that you have two different prepositions following the same verb, right? So I'm going to sholeach, I'm going to send all my um, plagues, el libcha to your heart, whatever that means, right? I'm sure Rex is going to say something. Uh, to your heart. Uh, and then in or upon your servants and upon your people, etc. So that's also uncommon. You have um, one verb introducing two different um, uh, prepositions, okay? Um, we know what the words mean. Anyone want to jump in and ask any questions or comments on what is going on in this verse? Joanna, and then I see Rick, I don't know if it's again or a still, and I see Sue. That libcha really jumps out at me because yeah. um, if it was going to say, first of all, I would have expected just lecha there. Mm -hmm. And if it was going to say libcha, I would expect it for, you know, um, Lev avadecha, lev amecha, that it, the lev part is only to paro and not to the others who will be affected. And um, to me, it's, a, it's playing off what we just read, vayachazek um, et lev paro. Um, so right now, that's the status of your lev paro, but it's, that's not going to be the status much longer. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, the, the, my only response to that is, hmm. Right, like I, I, we have no idea. Um, it, it's impossible to um, escape the idea that the phrase elibcha is anything but connected to a chizuk lev. What that actually means, we don't know. Listen, we don't even know what the word lev meant in the Torah. Like we know that the word lev meant heart, but we don't know. Does that mean, as Rick is pushing it, an organ? I, I, there. I'm sure it doesn't mean what we think of it colloquially in English, like my heart is with you. Like, I don't think they talk that way. In fact, um, for them, the heart was the seat of intelligence, not the seat of emotions, right? So we don't even know what, what the word means, therefore what it should mean in this phrase, but it does jump out. I'm gonna show you however Fox translates it. 
Uh, I'll just read it out loud. Um, Indeed, this time I will send all my blows upon your heart. He's, he's trying hard to figure out how to put that into a colloquial English that makes sense, but it, it, it's hard, hard, to get, hard, hard to get it right. Uh, Rick and then Sue and then Marshall. Well, yeah, there it is. Uh, it, it didn't have to be there. It could have just said, Magevotai, uh, on your slaves and on your people. So there's a reason why the heart is there. And um, um, if we pull back and we remember that in the in ancient times, they thought God was in charge of everything, our country, their country. So... Um, no matter what the Egyptians do, God is still in charge of things. And um, um, it, again, it's all about the heart. So, yeah. And, and even if we don't, even if we recognize that we can't fully translate heart, we can say in the Torah's idiom, the very thing that I, God, have hardened, I'm now attacking. Right? So, so even if we don't know what, he, what the Torah means by the word, I, 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 I hardened your lave. And now I'm sending all these blows to your lave. And it's the same thing, whatever that thing is. Uh, Sue, Marshall, Stevie, Joel. Um, I, well, I have a couple of things. One, um, the, the, uh, that also kind of jumped out at me. But aside from that, I, I was sort of wondering, thinking about, you know, so that, in the, so that it will always, as it passes, you will know or... As it as it happens, or as it happened, or it'll be for history, or it's like a, it's um, there's something about like the the heaviness of where this is going to go. That all for, for all time, it will be known. Mm. Um, <clears throat> kind of are you are you commenting there, Sue, on the root of Ba'avor as Avar? Yeah, I am. Yeah, interesting. I I've never really thought why the word Ba'avor means what it means. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I, I just know what it means, right? right. So, right, because Bavor means in, 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 in order that, but the root of Bavor uh, is, is Ayan Bet Resh. I think Stevie wants to say something. Yeah, I spoke about this in the library meeting just the other day. Oh. Um, that uh, Avor is in the book of Joshua very clearly, but also in linguistics and in, in parallel languages, Avor is a noun that means like crops or produce. Hmm. And similar to English, so where produce can mean, you know, produce or produce, right? Uh, it seems to be similar in Hebrew that uh, it, it's, you know, something that brings forth or brought forth. Um, and uh, there's some linguists think that every preposition in Semitic languages uh, has a noun that it's based off of. Interesting. That, you know, lifne is... You know, Lifnim or, you know, Lefi are all like sort of obvious examples, but. Uh, Even like Lamed and Bet or just the longer prepositions? I think just the longer ones. Yeah. But, Interesting. Um, Thank you, Stevie. Yeah. By the way, I, th- I love the fact that Rick is so connected to us that he is commiserating with our cold in this room by having put on a ski hat. It's really, I just, I just feel how intimate you are to this class, even if you're hanging out in Redondo. I have, wait, I, have, I have one more comment. Westlake Village. It's just cold. <laughs> it is cold in here. Um, I have one more thought. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I there was all these terrible things that are happening to all around him, to Pharaoh and all around him. But uh, and I don't I don't know how much brutality there was in in the 
in the civilization around him. I've been watching Game of Thrones, so I'm a little <laughs> overwhelmed by it. But, um, um, you know, he owned slaves and, you know, a whole entire people of slavery and mistreatment and all that kind of stuff. And so I sort of, I wonder about this, how much did it mean to him? How much did it mean to Perot? And and I think this drilling down into Libra has to do with that because, what, 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 you know, I don't know how much it would matter. Hmm. I mean, why, why would this band of slaves mean so much to this particular tyrant? Yeah. yeah. I mean, he's not necessarily some beneficent somebody or another. Yeah. Marshall Joel? Yeah. You know, when we think about the Pesach Seder, we think about the ten plagues as Eser Makot. And here we're using the word Magepotai. I don't recall about the other plagues that we've seen before, whether we've called them Makot or Magefot. But it occurs to me that the word Magefa also has the idea of lean gof, which means like to push. That one is in effect pushing all these plagues against the heart of, of Pharaoh. Hmm. We had Magefotai in the in the verb form. I think in Sfardaim it was Hine any no no gef bechogbucha. So uh, the the noun so Magefotai just to break it down uh, is Magefot sheli. Right. So my Magefot. What are Magefot? Plural of Magefa. What's a Magefa? It's the noun from the verb lean gof because as I've described more than usual in the last few weeks, the the first letter of the if the first letter of the root is a nun like nogef, it can fall out in certain forms. So there's a nun in there. You actually see that. That's why there's a dagesh in the gimel. The dagesh in the gimel is to tell you there was, was once another letter there. Um, and so we've seen it in verb form. I'm not sure we've seen it in noun form in the story yet. Yeah. Um, for Joel, will you say, will you say something? Yeah, Joel. Think, jo- excuse, excuse, yes. Oh, yes. I just wanted to say also that Alter translates the word magaifotai as scourge. scourge. S-C-O-U-R-G-E. Hmm. Uh, yeah, what did ever ever Fox had said it as blows my blows. Yeah, Steve. Okay, um, two things. One, very quickly. In addition to libcha as being singular, um, teda is also right. That these are things that are directed just at Pharaoh and the uh, avdecha and amecha are sort of ancillary. Um, mm-hmm. But the uh, the more radical thing I want to say is. Sometimes you get in Bible uh, a line or part of a line or multiple lines, whatever, that are sort of a summary of whatever story is about to come and not actually an independent thought, right? Most famously, this is, right, at the beginning of the Akedah, God says, right, uh, it says, like, God's testing Abraham, and then God starts speaking to Abraham, and it's like, clearly, it's not like, Oh, the test was finished, and then God starts speaking. It's this is anyway. Um, so I think that's actually what's going on. We talked about how verse twelve is really awkward uh, with uh, God hardening Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh not listening to, and it's not clear to whom he's not listening. Um, I gave some you know creative ideas last time, but I think that if you read that as introducing everything that's about to follow, it actually fits a lot better that here's the story of like Pharaoh being presented with a choice and not listening and 
being hardened, you know, you know, having his heart hardened and so forth as like, uh, right. Like as the next plague or plagues. Steve, are you saying that the phrase, um, I, I would say reading verse 12 is not sequential, but just as sort of, right. Right. And verse 14, your offering is also non-sequential because we're, we're halfway through the, right? this is the first time someone's mentioned on this verse that is what Rashi is going to pick up, and is that we're halfway through the plagues, and now Pharaoh's, uh, God is saying, I'm sending you all my plagues. So does that, Rashi is going to read that very technically and say, ah, therefore, I don't want to give away the store, but, but, but that all my plagues actually can refer to the plagues that are coming up. Are you suggesting, Stevie, that it's actually, this was a, an opening sentence that should have appeared, you know, before the, all the plagues began, and we're just bringing it back here because it's a reference to the entire I, narrative? I don't think so. I think that each confrontation has to be looked at as sequential to uh-huh. the other confrontations. So, so how would you understand a kol magefotai in your uh, reading? Like, I mean, like, I, I don't think, I mean, we talked about coal with the animals earlier that mm. leaves them out, right? Like, mm. it, you know, I don't, I don't think that a bunch of them. Yeah, like I'm, I'm not holding back now. Got it. Doesn't necessarily mean that, like, I've never given a plague before now. Got right? it. Great, that's a really helpful comment. I don't, I have no idea who is next. So we'll just go ahead, Joel. Okay, that's a great introduction. Um, this might be obvious, but the understanding is Kiba Pam Hazot is differentiating the following, the, what's coming up with what already happened. So now he's saying, from now on, all the rest of my plagues are going to be against your heart. Mm. El is directional. Mm. And U'avadecha, the bet, is just like, and that's just ancillary. It's also going to affect your people, your uh, servants and your people. The original plagues tried to do it the other way, tried to attack the servants and the people, hoping that it would affect um, Pharaoh. Um, but now he's going to change the direction. That's really nice. So if you, you could say it in more colloquial English, like from this point forward, I'm, I'm going to focus all, all, all that I got right on you. Right. Yeah. What's interesting about that, Joel, is that I, I think it's a lovely read of the words. It would be, and, 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 and when we get to Rashi either this week or next week, we'll see how this connects, but it would be more apt if the plague that were to come were more obviously smiting Pharaoh, right? The next plague, I wouldn't want to live through it either, but it's just hail, right? Like, it doesn't seem that it's that, it's that much different or more personally attacking Pharaoh than Shechin, right? But I like, I like your, the, the, the way of rendering the Hebrew there. Uh, Barry, Joanna, I don't know, Rosemary? Um, I think if we divide the plagues, um, they can be on three parts. The first part is more like uh, environmental or exterior. Uh, and if we take it internally, it's just uh, down the heart because you are drinking water. Mm. And then it goes on your skin. The things which come, you can poof, go away, the frog or yeah. uh, whatever happens. Now the third part is going to go exactly on the top, which is your life. Mm. It's your being. Your heart is the main because thing. Because it's, if we it's don't coming have, down upon it's you. Come, even the... Um, 
uh, the grain which is going to fall, it's going to knock you, and yeah. that's going to wake you up. So that will be interesting contrast to Rashi, because Rashi also is going to try to make sense of this, and Rashi is going to connect Barad and Arbe, the ones to come, hail and locust, differently than the way Rosemary did, but trying to make sense, sense of the same question. Joanna, and then we'll read Rashi. Um, so I started to have this thought after Sue's book, and it connects also very well to what um, Joel said, which is um, when Sue was talking, we were talking about, you know, why is Pharaoh so affected by the presence of this people? But I think there's another why to ask also, why isn't Pharaoh affected by what's happening to his own people, right? And it hasn't gotten to him personally yet, and it's about to. And I wonder also if that read is in a little bit of anticipation of the hell. I don't know why the hell would affect Paro so personally, but it does. Because at the end of that plague, towards the end, Pharaoh says, I have sinned. Um, um, what verse but, you want, Joanna? Uh, I have to find it again. Give me one second. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to give permission. Um, verse 27. Zion. Right, so this is actually a very long plague. Yeah, okay. Right, so, Vayishlach paro vayikra lemoshe ularon vayomer alehem chatati hapa'am. And interesting, hapa'am is brought back. Papam hazot and now chatati hapa'am. Right, and then it gets Adonai hatzadik va'ani va'ami harishaim. So, for reasons that are not entirely clear, we see that hell was personal to Paro. Yeah, very good, Joanna. Um, um, the other thing I just wanted to comment on is how much we're focusing on um, Libcha and how much the commentators don't. Yeah. It's c- almost completely overlooked by them. Right, and part of that may just be that in 20th, 21st century English, we think of the word heart differently or, and, and more expansively. To them, it may have just been a vocabulary word. Yeah. All right, back to Sue. Let's read the Rashi on this. Um, and Okay, so what, as you read the Rashi on this, since this is very interesting because there are several different uh, versions of the Rashi around the table, there are two different versions of this Rashi. So um, which one are you reading out of, Sue? Which book? This one. That, oh, that one. Okay. Um, before you start reading... Well, start reading. Uh, what's the fourth word of the of the of that commentary in Rashi? This one is who, I don't I, I don't know who this is. Okay, it's a good one though. Uh, the fourth word under Rashi, I have another comment by the way, is lamanu mikan she makat bechorot. Raise your hand if you're the fourth word you have is bechorot. Most of you. And what, what, what I have in mind, and what some people say is the more correct version, is the word batsoret. So mine is that in parentheses. Batsoret, yeah. Um, Instead of bechorot? Right. So we'll, we'll, we'll explain what that means in a, in a second, which reminds me, I was going to say something before. Who said that, that libcha should have been lecha before? Right. So you can easily understand how over 3,000 years or yeah, of, of, of transmission that a bet stuck, got stuck in there. So we might be perseverating on Libcha. It might have just been Lecha, right? Sometimes a bet appears. Okay, so, so Rashi is, whatever the fourth word is, he's trying to learn something from the fact that the Torah here uses the word 
et kol magevotai, and even though, as Stevie reminded us, it was Rashi who told us that kol sometimes means rove, that all sometimes means uh, most, there's some shift in how we're supposed to understand what's coming up if we're reading it sequentially, because now something different has happened. So, lamadnu mikan, we learn from this. I, I, I want to say that, but I, I want to say something else. But go ahead, say go ahead. Before. I got the microphone. Because um, uh, <laughs> it says, right? ki ein kamoni b'chol aretz. We didn't kind of talk about that before. I, uh, um, I don't know that we've had... I don't know that we've had, first of all, it says Kamoni, and it's Aaron and Moshe talking. It's, it's right. It's Moses. It's God telling Moses what to tell Pharaoh that God said. Right. So it still has Aaron standing there before Pharaoh saying, Ain Kamoni Ba'aretz. Right, right. Um, Aretz. And I don't think that we've had God saying, you know, show them this. We've had the Khartoumim and we've had, you know, but he hasn't come out and said, you know, uh, there aren't, uh, there's nothing like me. Yeah. Um, so it p- appears right there in that, I don't know. Well, it's anyway. also interesting, you know, we take the Torah out to read every week on Shabbat. We say, in kamocha, in kamocha. Yeah, yeah. God said that about God's self first. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. okay. As you translate it, try to figure out why someone would say this cannot be the right right version of Rashi. Uh, what I don't know what you mean. This is. Uh, I think from- it's saying in the, the translation. I think it's saying that the, it's just it's the same. They're all. They're all weighed up against Makat Bechorot, like Ki'ilu, that wasn't the worst. No. What is it saying? So, Lamadun Bikan, we learn from this, if we're using your version, Shemakat Bechorot, that the plague of the firstborn, Shkula, is weighed against, is as, is as bad on its own, Keneged Kol HaMakot, compared to all the other nine, right? So, all the other nine combined. Right. So, first of all, I would tend to agree but why would that? Why would someone say that can't be what Rashi means here, Joanna? Because I think it's because I think it's so obvious. Like, why do we even need to say that? Of course, right. That's the worst possible thing that could happen. And why else would it be strange for this to be what Rashi is saying here, Stevie? Because it's uh, in the middle of the nine. <laughs> right. Like, how are you separating what's about to come from what's like? What was before, presumably, when you're in the middle of, like, one group and not at the next group. If this were what God, Moses, God told Moses to tell Pharaoh, to tell God that God was saying before the 10th plague, fine. But we're halfway through. So it's hard to, it's hard to read this as Bechor wrote, referring to the, the introduction of the 10th plague when we're really just introducing the 6th plague. Now, Batsura, what does Batsura mean? Surus? <laughs> Batsura means famine. Famine, famine. So um, my version has that the um, plague of famine um, is, is, is on its own combined uh, as bad as all the other ones combined. What would famine have to do with this? And this goes back to my um, saying that, that Rashi would have a different understanding than Rosemary did as to what the real impact of Barad is. Why, what does famine have to do with what's going on right here? Joanna? Because the Barad is going to destroy all the corrupts. Right. And what is after Barad? 
locusts. And, and, you know, I wouldn't want to live with locusts swarming around me, but the problem with locusts is not that they kill you. The problem with locusts is they eat all your food. So the version of Rashi that is Batsoret suggests the following. We had the following, we had the previous six. We all know that the 10th is the worst. I, I'm, I'm kind of adding a little bit to this right now. And ninth is in its own category. Darkness is weird, but darkness doesn't kill you. Darkness doesn't hurt you. Darkness doesn't make you suffer in that way. So let's put darkness out. It's as if Rashi's saying, the two that are going to come, whose impact on society is famine, is as bad as the six that came before it. Right? It's also weird because Rashi knows what the names of the plagues are, and we've never seen the word Batsoret in all of this, and so why he would use that word and then force us to guess what he means, that's also a weird possibility, which means there's a third possibility as to what's going on here. Does anyone have the Torah? Uh, some people have the Torah Chaim here. Um, I want to read to you the, I can't get this on screen because I don't have that on screen, but I want to read to you the footnotes on this in the Torah Chaim, which is the, the most academic, scholarly, um, annotation of Rashi that we have as far as I know. Okay. So um, the version of the words that the Yitzchayim has is Lamadnu Makat Bechorot. Okay. But there's a footnote, footnote 69. And look what he says. Habet Bepatach. The word that we are pronouncing Bechorot. It's not Bechorot. Put a patach, put an A vowel under the bet. The hakaf b'shuruk. What's what vowel is shuruk? U, and put an U vowel under the kaf, as if he says you should pronounce this not b'chorot but b'kurot. And what, what, does that open anyone's mind? Maybe it's very hard to figure out. It also may be that that it, um, that that there was an ancient word that has to do with the time of the year, and that kurot. It's ba kurot that um, all of the plagues that were in or related to kurot was measured up against all the other ones. He continues, vehi makat barad. What's being referred to here is the plague of hail. V'nikrit kach. It's called that. Al shem shelo haita hamaka rak bedivre rak bedivre avivim, because um, it was. Um, it was called this because this plague only comes down on the avivim. Now, even in the footnote, it's hard to understand because aviv means springtime, but it also means a certain type of agricultural production. So something to do with the fact that don't read as Bichorot, this is not the 10th plague. Stevie's question, answer before is correct. There's no reason why Rashi referring to the 10th plague here. But if you, if you have to make sense of the letters, bet, chaf, vav, resh, vav, taf, read it as bakurot, that this is related to the plague that's going to impact the kurot. I don't really know what that means. He says, re'ech is kuni. korsim, and some read this verse as, this rashi as, batsoret, famine. Shehabarad hu sibat habatsoret, because the hail is the reason the explanation for the famine that's going to come, as it says later on, v'et kol esav hasadeh hikah barad that all the plants of the field, the barad destroyed. Right? So if you, you have three possibilities, none of them are particularly excellent. Bichorot, which what it looks like, why is it here? Bakurot seems forced. 
but Soret, why would Rashi have used a word that we haven't used before? Can I add a fourth? Joel has a fourth. I saw, and Rick has a hand up. So I think Rashi has the same question that we do. We do. It says all the rest of my um, play, my Magi Fort, are going to be against your heart, and it's not. Only, only the last one was against his heart. So Rashi is saying, aha, the last one is as much as all the other ones. So all, in essence, all the other ones are going to be against your heart. Got it. That's another good read. Rick, and then we'll, that would probably be the last comment. Hi. Rick's okay, alert. so, hi, the footnote. <laughs> what? They would need to be blue. <laughs> the ahead, footnote in Silverman is really helpful, okay? It's kind of long, but I really want to contribute, okay? <clears throat> it says here, oh, first of all, in the translation, um, they have the first ripe ears, Okay, the first ripe ears outweighed all the previous plagues. Anyway, so yes, that's what um, I was referring to before that the aviv can refer yeah. to the, the season or the the ears of grain that are ripening in that season. Correct. Right. But I don't You'll know how like that this, wrote. You're going to like this because it's an abbreviation. Anyway, here we go. There's no mention in the text here of the plague of the firstborn, and there is little doubt but that the reading of bechorot. Um, um, Mikan, whatever, in Rashi is incorrect. As the text stands, the least violence is done to it if we merely alter the punctuation of the word Bechorot and read Bakurot, the first ripe ears, instead. Rashi might have oh, called pause. the plague of hate. So, pause one second. So, Joanna, you were right. Yeah. So, so Bakurot is not Bakurot, but it's another way of saying Bikurim. You're absolutely, I didn't, I didn't pick up on that. The, the early ripening ones. Great. Go ahead. Uh, yeah. Rick. Can I? Yeah. Rashi might have. You ready? Rashi yeah. might have called the plague of hail Makat Baku wrote in allusion to verse 31, where scripture states that the barley and the flax were smitten because they were already in the first stage of ripening. We have translated the verse accordingly. Where they put it. Okay. Uh, the ears. Then he goes, Rabenu Tom of Orleans. Uh, in France, I suppose, not new. Yeah, not the new one. <laughs> Rabbi Tom suggested that originally there was in Rashi's comment the abbreviation Mem Chipchik Bet, which was er- erroneously copied as Makat Bechorot, because these words are often abbreviated by Mem Chipchik Bet. Another suggestion is that. The two letters Mem Chipchik Bet might have been the abbreviation of Makat Batsoret, calamity of famine, uh, an expression occurring in Mishnah Tanit, by which the term plague of hail might have been described by Rashi, or we suggest in our note on the Hebrew text of uh, Berliner, Berliner in the Lakut. I don't know, to his edition, and the footnotes, I guess, to his edition, points out that Dunash ben Labrat, in his reply to Menachem ben Saruk. These were early ex- uh, linguists. Yeah, when explaining the text, Isaiah, um, that's 60, chapter 60, verse 1, also refers to Makat Barad as to the greatest plague, the one that outweighed all the other plagues. He suggests that since Rashi used uses in his comment, um, yeah, 
So it's it's Makat Barad and not Makat Bechorot. Uh-huh. So that maybe the original, even in the Rashi, didn't actually have the words written out. It's just Membet, and then it's up to us to figure out how to decipher it. Uh, we'll end on that because we're past the, past the time. I, got, I, have to, I have to go very, I'm sorry. Um, next week, class is normal. I may le- have to leave class five minutes early next week. And we'll so miss having you join us. So nice having you around this table. But we'll see you next week on Zoom. Uh, have a good week, everybody. He's uh, a Baruch. May the memory of Eyal Mavarach Twito be for a great blessing to his family and to his people. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.